Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. All right, everybody, welcome to Fast Money. I am Brian Sullivan, and your traders on this very important night tonight are Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, Karen Feinerman, and Guy Adami. All right, we're going to get to that in just a second. It was, meantime, a record day on Wall Street, and for many, a day to forget. All three major averages plunging more than 7%. The Dow, the biggest loser, falling 2,013 points. That is not a misquote. That is the largest point drop ever and one of the top 10 biggest declines on a percentage basis ever. The transports crushed, falling nearly 10%, their worst day since all the way back in September of 2001 on 9-11. Obviously, don't need to remind you what happened then. Today's losses fueled by that crude crash that we just discussed. The energy sector having its worst day ever as well. Oil losing roughly a quarter of its value. Crude is now trading just below $31 a barrel. Many oil and gas stocks down 30 and 40% today. As the market assesses, simply many of these companies' ability to survive in a lower oil-priced world. And one more incredible stat for you on this incredible day. Interest rates continue to collapse. The yield on the 10-year Treasury note hitting a new low of nearly 0.3%. Well, following yesterday's sell-off or today's sell-off, S&P 500 stocks have lost a total of $5.7 trillion in market cap just since the record high on February First, there is your setup. It was, by any measure, an historic day. Guy Adami, I know you're on Power Lunch as well. Welcome, everybody, on this big day. We are commercial-free, by the way, through the entire hour. And this is a night, Guy, where we don't need to really get complicated. It's a question of what happened and what do we do now? Do you really believe that the drop in oil is what triggered this market today? Well, it's obviously a big part of it. You can't discount the fact that when crude moves to the extent that it moved, given the moves that already seen, it obviously had a lot to do with it. And that's uh, stoked the fears as well. But again, a lot of this has been in place for quite some time. You know, bond, bond rates, the bond market shouldn't move like it's moved over the last year and a half. And I'm not saying that today. We've been saying that for quite some time. The volatility in the bond market was striking. Nobody really talked about it because it's not equities. You know, if we had that kind of if we had had that kind half that kind of equity volatility, it would be front page news every day. Currency is the same thing. Tim speaks to that all the time. Now it's finding its way into the equity market after a long, a long period of time. I happen to think as painful as this is, this is really a good thing. The market needs this. I'm not suggesting it's over. I think you know when it's over. And this is just my opinion. When you see some big either hedge fund or derivatives book or some sort of bank with the derivatives, huge derivatives options plays when they blow up. When that happens, we're close. It hasn't happened yet. I saw some data today, Tim, that in some ways average volume was higher than during the peak of the 2008 collapse. The well, action was fast and it was violent. Dollar volume certainly would be based upon the levels we're at in the market. But um, the velocity of this, pick your asset class, every single one. Um, so, you know, to the intraday load on the S&P, we were, we were down about 19% in 12 days. Um, Guy mentioned uh, the reference to the dollar being down uh, about 5.2% in 12 days. The yen uh, strengthening, which we all know is, is kind of this unwind of carry trades. That's part of the dollar's move, by the way, um, and without getting too lost in that. Those are, you know, that yen move is a massive risk 
off move. That's a almost 10 percent move in the yen in, in 12 days. So, um, look. There's different fires going on around the world and in different asset classes, frankly. And I think uh, oil over the weekend was the latest mm. black swan in the middle of, you know, what, what might be a, a group of foul. There is a credit dynamic that is emerging out of the energy space that we all knew was there. And if you talk to, to credit traders in, in energy and in high yield, they'll tell you that actually, you know, where they're seeing the market right now is yeah. inside of the lows of 20. 18 December and more likely nearing the lows on yep. spreads right now of and, 2015. And we'll get to more on energy with Mike Bradley at TPH, one of the best, if not the best in the business. But Steve, I want to start off with you. And we had a circuit breaker hit, right? It fell 7%. I think it was three minutes after the open on the S&P 500. Stopped for 15 minutes. What was that like? You're on the floor. What was that Panicky. like? Panicky. It's not every day you deal with a circuit breaker. And you had it three times in 20 years or something like that? Three times. And when you have it telegraphed, where last night we're limit down the futures, that was a big deal. And everyone was waiting for us to get dropped to the next level, which was down 13%. So I, I think we're starting to see shades of panic. But I'd rather have this panic in the oil market than in the financial markets in the uh, banks, if that makes any sense. Didn't we have that today a little bit? Uh, you, you, had, you had it, but there's not a balance sheet panic there's a stock price panic, and I think those two things are com- completely different. Yeah, because, and I think we have a graphic on this. Goldman Sachs put out a note late today um, that I got, and it's basically energy's exposure to the banks. And it's small. I think Citigroup was the highest at, at about 3%. Right. You've got Bank of America at about 2%. So on an absolute basis, Karen, we're talking about a fairly small portion right. of the balance sheet. So I don't think that's really what was going on say. today. I mean, the market was down, so of course everything would would be down. I don't think it was oil. I think it was more this idea of rates, of course, that always, you know, is difficult for the banks, but this idea of a recession and credit quality. And what does that mean if we have a slowdown? What does that mean to their entire book of lending? Forget oil. The rest of their lending. If you look, Bank America, I think is Maybe among the hardest hit, they have a very big consumer book. So that's what I think, aside from the market, aside from rates, aside from oil, which really is, a, is the last one, yeah. uh, the, the smallest element of the move. Because take us into that, because I think this is a really important point to make, because it's not just about the move today. It's about what happens going forward. There's the data. Citigroup, 3.2% of their order book, according to Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, 1.5%. Those are small numbers relatively, but we're still talking 15 and $16 billion in the case of Citigroup or maybe J.P. Morgan Chase. And so is the idea, Karen, what you're talking about, if those things start to suffer, the chance of them those lending money oil? to businesses, giving you a mortgage, all that stuff starts to shrink a bit. Not because of the oil exposure, I don't think. Because of the, the rest of the book is so much bigger that, you know, if you're going to have businesses that are really starting to have trouble, that's, you know... I know J.P. Morgan, all the bank want to be, you know, they want to be a good partner. But at some point, you know, you don't want to extend credit that you don't think you're going to get back. So that's what I think was weighing a lot, plus rates and, and, think, and a market that was and, down. And I think today was the big fear day, right? I mean, everyone felt afraid. And you had so much of that set up last night when you're when you're watching the futures limit down. And then when you hear Governor Cuomo, though, I think he put it in perspective rather well when he said we're battling more fear than the virus. And I think. We're not we're not scientists. We're not MDs. But to me, it seems like the market's trying to factor all of this in. And I don't know where the chips finally fall. 
but it seems a little overdone to me. You know, well, <laughs> listen, Steve, fine, but we, ju we just had, you heard Wilf and Sarah say it, that the, the prime minister of Italy right. is trying to shut down the entire nation. Right. I think what so you're hold on. It's the ninth biggest right. economy right. in the so, world. So let me just real quick. So I think what Wilf is saying though too is that countries are trying to outdo each other with what they're shutting down. It's the same thing with S&P 500 companies. They're shutting down visitors. They're shutting down cafeterias. And if you don't shut down, you seem like you're being cavalier and God forbid something happens and you're to blame for it. Yeah. So Maybe, I think we're in a race to shut down but that's the world fair, right now. Fair enough, but that's not for us to judge here. Our, our job here is to analyze the economic backdrop, Guy Dami, and say, if we see a significant reduction in travel, driving, commuting to work, an economic slowdown, we have no idea what growth rates are going to be, if we have growth, and what corporate earnings are going to be. And maybe this is a stock market that reflected the idea that simply they don't know anything. Yeah, I hear what Steve is saying, 100%. And we have a lot of time, that, which is good. I mean, I think the coronavirus, you, a lot of people say it's the cause. That's fine. Everybody's entitled. I think it's just was sort of the final match on what has been a tinderbox, and that set it off. With that said, you know, the S&P 500, I think at today's close, is down 19 or so percent from the recent all-time high. It's a pretty big number. People will say the market's cheaper now. That might be true. I'd push back and say I can make an argument, and I'm not, again, I don't know this, but I can make an argument that stocks might actually be more expensive today than they were at the all-time high. Because we don't know any of the multiples. How can you possibly? Now, I'll say this quickly. 73%, 73% of this economy is driven by people buying things, going places. People are not going places. Listen, I want to go to my conference in Chicago at the end of the month. It got canceled. That's real. That's happening. So I don't think we can sit here and say, I don't think anybody's trying to do it, but we have no idea what's going to happen to earnings. And, and, and at, you know, 165, 166, which is where uh, we were last year and where consensus, or consensus is. I mean, first of all, I, I think we're lucky. If, if, and, and I'll leave it ultimately to the strategists that are making a call on S&P earnings, but it, it, you can't tell me um, we're going to grow 3 or 4% in and, and, and a revised downward. I mean, we're, we're talking about a major contract. Well, do you think we contract? Yes, I do think we contract. And, and that's, that's even in the construct that we're in now. So guy, we're all talking about the, the lack of, of uncertainty about the duration of this. Um, the other thing I bet the market, and I think we're all saying this, what is notable to me, though, despite what's implied on coronavirus here, is that I don't think today's move in the markets felt very coronavirus at, at all. Um, we weren't really talking about the virus. We weren't talking about politicians around the world. Yes, Italy took northern Italy and basically quarantined it. Um, and yes, New York State and other states are doing dramatic things. Schools are closing. But, but the market's move was set in motion um, by OPEC and Saudi, basically playing Russian roulette. Um, and I think Putin's got an ability to, to play this game longer than the Saudis do. And this is the construct in which the markets um, came into today. And then it's the credit. And then it's the dynamic that we're all talking about with different asset classes. Uh, uh, yes, Corona, of course. But what was interesting to me about today, as we get deeper into news flow on Coronas, the market wasn't trading on Coronas to me. It, it just wasn't. All right, let's talk more now about today's big sell-off. And more importantly, what now? What do we do? Joining us on the CBC News line is Tony Dwyer, Chief Market Strategist at Canaccord Genuity. Tony? Was today the bottom? 
Um, I think it's it's really close to at least a bottom, Brian. I think to capitalize on a little bit of what Timmy said, the yen's move today was extraordinary. So if you look at the 10-day rate of change on the on the U.S. dollar yen relationship, it's worse than it, it matches the worst of 08. And right, it happened on actually October 27th of 2008. And obviously, that wasn't the low, the low. It was a, a low. You actually had a significant rally off of that level. So as, as I wrote last night, um, the market is set up because of how wild the movement is in the various asset classes. Mm-hmm. I could look at the VIX, the 10-week rate of change there, matches the worst of 08. Again, not the low, but a low. Same thing with the 10-year note yield, 10-week rate of change, most excessive in history by a long shot, and, of course, the S&P. So, you know, there, is, there has been a significant drop, but it also isn't historically unique. Connect the dots between what happened in the yen. I mean, people tuning in, we're, we're fast money. We're talking about the stock market. But here we are talking about the yen twice in seven minutes. What is the yen yep. telling us? What, what does that mean? It's, it's just a flight. To, it's, a, it's a risk off trade. So think about the sentiment. Um, when we downgraded on the show, we downgraded the market on January 20th. We have yet to upgrade it because of all the issues that the, that the folks on the desk have talked about. But think back then. The sentiment was so positive. There was no currency, real currency issues. The VIX was as low as it's ever been. The 10-year note yield was just kind of grinding lower. And the S&P was making a new high by about a half a percent every single day. And sentiment was just far Far too extreme. That's one of the reasons we downgraded. Look, just think of last week. People were thinking the market was going to correct, but they weren't bearish. The movement into these issues suggests that now they're they're getting bearish. Let me just give you the data. So last last week, investors intelligence had 41 percent bulls, which is down pretty significantly from where it was over prior weeks at the new high. But they're only 20 percent bears. They're only so there's. Still, as of last week, twice as many bulls as bears. In 2011, it was 45 percent bears. 2016, 40, and 2018, 35. So, I think this week yeah. is kind of flushing it to the point where you're going to get this wicked reflex rally. Well, I'd like to see them. Re- I'd like to see them redo that uh, questionnaire on bull bear today, right now. Steve Grasso, jump in here. So, so Tony, when you look at this, I get airlines. I get the pressure there. I get the pressure on hotels. I get the pressure all around it, but. Are we going to make up for it in other segments of the economy? What do you think earnings are going to be? Because the market is a forward-looking price mechanism. What say you on that? Well, earnings are clearly, I've been below the street for the entire year. I'm at 172. I think the street's at 174 or 175 for this year. I think it's, I'm going to be too high. But it's really, this. I'd love to make it a fundamental issue, and credit is always a fundamental issue. But this is a human nature situation, and that's how you, you create tops on human nature and you create intermediate-term bottoms on human nature, and then the fundamentals shake themselves out. So to, to put the fundamentals into the intermediate-term bottoming process, human nature gives you the whoosh. We got that. We're down 19%. The, the kind of oversold condition and asset class volatility creates what is typically a, a vicious multi-week reflex rally. This has kind of been our playbook for the last couple of weeks. That reflex rally ultimately fails historically because you start to get that negative economic data, that negative corporate earnings revision data, and it's at that demoralizing test of the lows that you want to throw offense aggressively back on the field. So that's our playbook. 
Hey, Tony, a quick question just in terms of uh, the other sectors that, you know, so we talked about transports. Retail, if you take this back, and the XRT isn't a perfect measure, but it is certainly uh, one measure of retail. You're back to April 2013, if you drew a line. Um, is there any part of this that you think is, is getting, you know, maybe this is a different way of asking the same question, but, but there's certain things that have been beaten and they were beaten coming into this. Is this capitulation moment? I think it is, Timmy, and I think it is also for banks. I mean, look at the BK, the retailers, the banks, um, the socks, all the the semis. It's a Philadelphia Semiconductor Index. All of these areas are, I mean, the, the um, KBW Bank Stock Index, the BKX, mm-hmm. is down 35% since late February, not since like years ago. So what? this is what, unfortunately, severe whooshes look like, and, and just to kind of to put it into a context, Tim, so we can try and get in, in, the, in what it could look like over coming days. In 2011, we had an 18% drop over just a very few days. People forget about that. That was when Greece was going to fail. An 18% drop in a straight line over a few days. My friend Walter Diemer gave some context on that, on how volatile it got then. After that, that happened in August. After that, you had 70, I'm sorry, you had seven 90% upside days or consecutive 80% upside days. In other words, all of the volume was up. You also had nine more 90% downside days. In between that whoosh lower in August of 18% and the final low in early October, which was down 19.4. So, we're set up for a ramp. Yeah. It could be in the retailers, the banks, the semis, all those areas that nobody on the right mind wants to touch right now. But then you get that demoralizing yeah. test of the low, and it's there that, that our game plan is to get more offensive. Because but not I, yet, I frankly but not like yet Tony. Not yet. On the macro well, market, the advice of the viewers, do not get aggressive yet, correct? Well, yes. it depends. Okay, so this is, I mean, if you're, I mean, yes if or you're no, a trader. Tony, I love you, brother. We've got to move on. Yes or no? Okay. No, I'd wait until the test from an investment standpoint. All right, Tony Dwyer, Canaccord, Genuity. Tony, I appreciate that. We are commercial-free, but we still got a lot stacked in here. Guy Dami, when I look at the few things that were higher today, auto parts were no higher. No idea. Dollar Tree. You know, what, you know what tends to move up when things slow down in the economy or recessionary? Those types of companies. In your mind, when the data comes out, and sort of I asked Tim this in, in a backward way as well, are we in, right now, a recession? Will we go into recession? Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Well, now what, I I know we have a lot of time. What causes a recession? So in my world, my crazy world, a stock market sell-off causes a recession. Why? Because people get spooked, they stop spending money. We're down 19%. With this coronavirus, people are absolutely spooked. So are we there yet? No. Are we on the cusp of one? Absolutely. But, you know, I don't think a recession causes the stock market itself. I'm probably the wrong person to ask. But I'll say this quickly again. I'm with Tim on the coronavirus thing. Go back and look in September when this whole Fed overnight repo thing started. We talked about it on this show. Nobody ever heard the word term coronavirus back then. Yields were falling precipitously back then, not like they are now. Gold was going higher back then. So all the warning signs were there. We tried to point some out. It fell in large part on deaf ears because the market went up every single day quickly 
to me, the, the, the absolute breaking point for me personally was over that weekend when Apple said, you know what, things in China are bad. You know, we're, we're not going to meet our numbers. The stock was at an all-time high on Friday, traded down $6 the next day. Nothing. The following day was making an all-time high. You think that made any sense whatsoever? So as crazy as you think this might be, I would say that was equally nuts. Well, if you think about something like a Walmart, which which was up, uh, eked out a, 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 a heroic gain today and certainly has been uh, trading, you know, very much close to all-time highs. And, yeah, I get uh, the panic buying, the stocking, the pulling forward. Um, but my view on Walmart is this was an expensive stock three weeks ago. Um, it's, it's only a much more expensive stock relative to the market now. We haven't even gotten into a place. We, Friday, we all universally shrugged off a non-farm payroll that had 275,000 jobs added and a 3.5 unemployment rate because everybody said that may be the last number you're going to see like it. Um, ultimately, you know, Walmart to me is one of the great, you know, conduits of some of that uh, that job market being so healthy, and one that would certainly be the first to suffer from it. I, I think you have to be very careful about chasing these stocks that have been defensive because of the environment related to coronavirus that has made their business model in the short run seem very interesting. When in fact they're very reliant on the consumer, and the multiple on the stock um, is is well past its five-year average. In fact, it's about 25% expensive to its five-year average. I just want to talk about the auto parts space for a minute, which Mm -hmm. I I thought was really interesting. I don't know exactly why. I don't know if it's because people think people aren't going to buy new cars, they're going to hang on to their cars longer, and or it could be gas prices are going to plummet. People will drive more. Maybe if they're not flying, they'll drive. Not really sure, but also maybe their uh, their supply chain is better than some other industries. It was just it is interesting to me though that that space, which is very consumer driven, did seem to have a pretty decent day. I don't know how uh, the rest of you are gauging this, but when I look on, I go on the CDC website and I look last week or a week and a half ago, 1,600 people died from the flu, 80,000 died from the flu a couple of years back. Now, I'm not belittling any of the deaths, but I do think that this is an overreaction because we have no idea where this is going to go. I do agree with Guy. The market wanted to sell off. It wanted to sell off on impeachment. It wanted to sell off on tariffs. It wanted to sell off on everything. Well, I, I think I'm saying the same thing. I mean, I, I said I don't think the market was really pulling back on Corona today. And, and ultimately, the, the question is really, um, I, I asked this question, I posed this on Friday, where I said, is, is the move proportionate to a change in fundamentals? And the question then, the other question you ask is, well, where were fundamentals? And were fundamentals at 23, at, sorry, at, at, at 3389 on the S&P, were they in the right spot? Um, and and I, yeah. I think we can... Well, I, I would argue, and I think there was a lot of folks looking at price to sales, EV EBITDA, um, price to earnings, and, and able to draw comparisons to times when the market's been very bubblish. It's not all stocks, um, but again, I think part of this is where we came from. That's why the velocity of this move is so extraordinary. Can I just add one more thing? Yeah, sure. I think coronavirus actually had a fair amount to do with today for a, somewhat of a different reason. New York is starting to feel the effects of maybe not coronavirus, but of the reaction to oh. what do we do? This is New York you is, think the, is the psychological center of the financial markets in the U.S., right? And I cannot help but think that people involved with the financial services industry now feel this is coming to their doorstep, and it feels so much more dangerous than a, a hometown a home- overreaction. 
I don't know if it's an over. Yeah, maybe. It's because a hometown Because every trader I know is either now working from home or they're split into teams. Yep. Right. Call so it you, a reaction. You go into work today. You go into work tomorrow. You guys right. never every, see every each Every trading other. desk that Everybody's I'm doing that. Our audience is, probably doesn't is realize splitting that. the trading desk just to keep 50% of the people healthy. But when I look at where you're spending the money, yes, the cruise lines. Yes, the hotels. Yes, the airlines. Those are going to be impacted. But there's got to be an overflow that goes into yeah. other sectors that somewhat makes up for it because people are not stopping spending completely. We'll get to that in a second because basically some government agencies are saying maybe you should reconsider taking a cruise. All right. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. So, that major drop in oil fueling the massive sell-off today, or at least a big contributor. Crude down 25%, biggest one-day drop since 1991. The energy stocks, they got, I mean, obliterated. I don't know if that's too strong of a word. Probably not. You had Occidental Petroleum losing 52% of its value today. Apache, Diamondback, Marathon Oil losing 40-plus percent. You name it. Let's bring in Mike Bradley of Tudor Pickering and Hold. He's been on the front lines of this. We've been talking for about two years on this on this debt issue out there, Mike. So uh, tough day to have you on, but we certainly appreciate it. You know, and does did the market deserve a terrible word, I guess. Did the market should the market have sold off the way that it did? Did Occidental deserve to lose 52 percent of its value today? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, I think the biggest issue with today's market was uh, not only crude oil prices, but the debt markets really came apart today. You're seeing some really high quality uh, EMP names where the debt was, you know, par two days ago and now is trading at 60, 70 cents. Uh, I think that was the big driver. Illiquidity in debt markets really took some of these equities down. And anybody that has any leverage on the system and, and anything is questionable, it's just got destroyed today. And so that was the main driver. It's probably been, uh, you know, it feels very much like Q1 is 16 when we saw, you know, high yield uh, books blow up and debt really fall out of bed. That's what today felt like. It felt like a lot of illiquidity. And it, and it felt like it was less about crude oil and more about just fundamentals, financials uh, and, and debt for these guys. Do you think we, we asked this on a macro market level, Mike? I'll just focus on the energy stocks. Do you feel like today was the washout. We, nobody seems to it, it, agree it is for the macro market, but for the energy stocks, was today the worst it gets? Yeah, it, it was pretty bad. Look, I mean, we're, we got some of these things are so technically oversold here. But the one thing we would say is that we did not see a lot of guys stepping up to these names today. I think what people are looking at is, okay, is this going to be a two- or three-month uh, issue with OPEC and uh, with coronavirus, or is this going to turn into a you know, 12, 18, two-year type event? And, and I just don't think a lot of people right now you know, are falling e- either way at this point in time. So I think it was warranted. Probably, uh, you know, it's probably oversold today, but I just don't see really many buyers coming into these stocks at this uh, point in time. 
Hey, Mike, it's Tim. Again, thank you for joining us. Uh, crazy markets. Uh, what does it take to be a hero in terms of doing the balance sheet work and assessing uh, some of these first lien loans? Or, and again, our, our viewers aren't trading in this stuff, but you are. Um, and at some point, you know, valuations matter and things get kind of, you know, credit, credit can be qualitative. Mm-hmm. It's also a numbers game. What, what, what do you need to see? We just don't see a lot of people buying these stocks yet on valuation. It really is certainty. And you saw it today. You know, a couple of these EMPs came out. They cut spending uh, pretty aggressively. And you're going to see them, uh, a couple of these EMPs are just not going to grow next year. In fact, they're probably going to decline. You know, I think that's what people are wanting to see. Uh, they're delivering it, and those, and those stocks outperform. You're going to see a massive amount of, uh, you know, um, announcements over the next, uh, you know, probably two weeks. You're going to see production, and you're going to see CapEx coming down probably 30 to 35 40%. And you're going to see production next year is going to be declining uh, in the U.S. It's going to be the first time we've seen this in probably four or five years. I think that's what market part- participants want to see. They want to see a healthier market. Uh, it's getting washed out. Uh, valuation will matter at some point, but we've got to get the coronavirus uncertainty. And we've got to get the uncertainty on OPEC, what they're doing right now, and how yeah. long are they going to take this. Well, we know what they're doing, which is they're fighting. And they've all retreated into every country for itself and every company in America for itself. Oh, if we could, guys, can we bring up a 10-year chart of the XOP, the Oil and Gas Services ETF? Because I want to focus on this, Mike. I mean, the XOP, which it's a widely traded ETF. It's down 89% from its highs of just a couple of years ago. 89%. In other words, the market is predicting that many of these companies... And I don't think this is hyperbole or some sort of, you know, fear-mongering statement. Are going to go out of business? Is it that bad? Yeah, you're probably going to see 15 or 20 percent of the uh, companies will probably go, go out of business. But, you know, I think what's going on right now is that, you know, it's, it is uncertainty and, and people are scared. You know, what are we hearing from clients right now? Everybody wants to see these uh, the companies on a $35 strip uh you know, for in, into infinity. Uh, you don't usually see that uh, at top. You see that at bottoms. And so, you know, when you say, you know, you start down in $35 oil, you know, flat for two or three years, you know, the valuations don't look good. Uh, we don't think, value, you know, oil is going to be at $35 uh, a year from now. We think it's going to be higher. And, and so, yeah, we probably are in the probably seventh or eighth any of this. It doesn't mean it can't get worse. But, you know, we're seeing some good values. We're telling people to stay in the high-quality names. That hasn't really worked up to this point in time because everything's getting thrown at it discriminately. But, uh, yeah, I think the industry is going to be healthier here in the next 12 to 18 months. And I do think that's going to be enough to bring generalists back to the group. Uh, generalists did not want to get in this group simply because companies were just spending wildly. They weren't generating returns. They're going to be generating better returns. And, and when oil goes back to 45 or 50, uh, the returns on capital uh, are going to be pr- uh, pretty pretty significant. One quick final question, Mike, before we let you go. I know we've got to get to Bob Pisani in just a second here. here here's my question. Um, hedging. A lot of people coming at me mm. today saying, you're not counting the hedges. The market overreacted. The hedge books, I get it for this year. A lot of them, WPX and others, they've done well. What about next year? The data I'm seeing shows that hardly anybody is hedged at any limit for next year. We lost Mike Bradley, or he didn't like the question. Michael Bradley, if you can hear me, a a little laugh there, much needed on a Monday night. All right, so we'll get more on oil and OPEC in just a second. But we are coming up here. Well, it's 530 exactly right now, split down the middle. If you're just joining us out there, listen, a lot of people are stuck at home or they're working hard all day. They're not just sitting there watching the markets all day like we are. So let's go now to Bob Pisani to talk about 
the day that was, and, and Bob, you've been down at the NYSE now for how long? I, you're not trying to date yourself, but how long have you been down there for us? 23 years I've been the floor reporter at the New York Stock Exchange, and you don't see days like this very often, Brian, uh, thank heavens. It was a double whammy. That's the problem. The inability to figure out the economic impact of coronavirus on corporate earnings, well, that's bad enough. We had to deal with that. Then you throw in a sudden price war between the Russians and the Saudis on oil, and you have the makings of a very ugly day and a particularly ugly open. That's what I concentrate on here. Within three minutes of the market open at 9.33 a.m. Eastern time, the Stocks were halted system-wide due to circuit breakers that kicked in when the S&P dropped 7%. That triggered a 15-minute trading halt. This was the first time that the modern circuit breakers had kicked in, and it did its job, basically. The job was to pause the market and create liquidity. Stocks then rose when the market reopened 15 minutes later, but the damage was done. We ended right near the lows for the day. Energy stocks in particular were clobbered. Exxon down 12 percent. That's the lowest close since 2004 for Exxon. If there is a poster child for the woes for energy, Halliburton, three trading halts, one for the S&P 500 at 933 and then two individual trading halts at 10 a.m. and 1022 you see Halliburton closing down about 37 percent. Other economically sensitive groups also got hit hard, particularly banks and industrials. J.P. Morgan down 13 percent or so. That was the worst decline since the financial crisis in March 2009 on a single day. Industrials like Boeing, Caterpillar, United Technologies all down 9 to 13 percent. This wasn't, though, a complete bloodbath. We finally saw some differentiation in the marketplace. Some stuff held up a little bit better than others. Generally, they were consumer names and not just Walmart. Walmart was the only stock that was up for most of the day, not at the close, but most of the day. Defensive names, Pfizer, United Health down, but outperformed the broader market. Same with Procter & Gamble. Same with Johnson & Johnson. Same with Pfizer. All down 3 to 4 percent. Horrible days but far outperformed the broader market, down 7.6%. Only good news here today is the circuit breaker did serve to sort of halt the horrible sentiment at the open, and the reopening things were a lot calmer. And the VIX, in fact, did drop after we reopened, although still very, very elevated. Brian, back to you. Oh, Bob, we are glad that you are down there. 23 years of historical knowledge and wisdom and dealing with this, never flustered. Bob Pisani. I want to, Tim, you lived in Russia. I want to ask you a question about OPEC, because if oil helped drive us down, okay, here's the thinking. And I wrote about it this weekend, by the way. I think it's still up on CBC.com. The Russians ostensibly wanted to punch U.S. shale in the face because Trump put sanctions on Rosneft. Rosneft is the big Russian oil company. It's run by Igor Sechin, who is Putin's former employee and ostensibly best friend. Well, Trump didn't put sanctions on Russia. I mean, those, those were legacy sanctions. But uh, on Nord Stream, and so, put it this way, if the two can talk, you think there's any chance that there's anything we can do back channel to get Russia back to the table with the Saudis and get the OPEC deal done, which might stabilize oil and thus the market? Yes, but ultimately you have to ask what what is Russia's negotiating uh, tactic and what are they trying to achieve? And, and, you know, my view, having spent a lot of time in Russia is, first of all, uh, I can just tell you that the, the oil and gas industry gets more profitable as the ruble devalues and we get in crisis moments because actually the, the oil prices are uh, at higher levels of taxation at higher levels of oil. Uh, but more importantly, they are a they have local ruble based costs which actually get cheaper 
uh, when the ruble devalues and they are dollar exporters. So they're much more profitable in this kind of an environment. So um, Russia doesn't mind this environment. They also have a budget which fiscally breaks even at forty three dollars a barrel. Saudi's at eighty five a barrel. So who's got more pain uh, on the budget side? And Saudi's been very clear about their move uh, away from oil and their twenty thirty. And and the chaos in Saudi Arabia right now that we're also hearing anecdotally, I think, is something that Putin is seizing. This helps Putin's negotiating in the Middle East. Putin's got a game plan. He's got a game plan of helping Venezuela, um, other wounded OPEC players. This is part of the whole tactic. And I don't think Putin needs to rush to the table here, frankly. That's just a view. And therefore, it's it's a view I have that this volatility doesn't serve anybody. But U.S. shale is free cash flow positive above 50. And Putin knows that. Yeah. What's interesting is I thought we wanted lower oil prices. I thought we wanted lower rates. I thought we wanted a lower dollar. Now you're getting everything you want, and look what's happening to the market. Sort of be careful what you wish for thing. So I'm sort of with Tim on this thing. I don't see any compelling reason for anybody to go to the table. It is warf- it's, it's economic warfare, and I, it pains me to say it. Right, n- right now, we appear to be losing. 42 used to be long-term support. This is what I've been saying for a couple of weeks slash months here. I never expected it to break down this precipitously. But once you break down and you get below $30, then you're in a world of hurt. You look at that 26.55 level. So I, I don't I, I do still think that people for the most part want lower oil. They don't want it for this reason. But ultimately, a bunch of companies are going to go out of business. It's going to be survival of the fittest if anyone's left. And then we'll recoup, yeah. regrow. But until that, I think you're going to see lower for longer. Yeah, and you heard Mike Bradley say it, 15 to 20% of the equities could be gone away. And by the way, many of them are down 99%. I mean, literally, that's a number. All right. The market crashing through several key technical levels in today's brutal sell-off. Is there any support anywhere out there? Cornerstone Macro's Carter Worth over at the Plasma. Any support anywhere, Carter? Rubbing his hands together, you could too. just pick, pick your levels. But let's, uh, let's first talk about the concept of a bear market. Now, you know, headlines are always focused on the 20%, and really no one knows where that came from. But let's, let's use that. If the Russell 3000 is the broadest investment aggregate we have, covering essentially the entire investable universe, which is obviously the S&P 500 plus the next 2,500 stocks, these are the numbers. 2,467, 83% are already down 20. So is that a bear? Or how about down 25? 72% of the constituents are down 25. Or or let's go a little further. How about 30? 60% of the constituents in the largest aggregate we have are already down 30. It's a bear market. You can call it what you want. We know what it is, and it's presumptively not over. Where can it go? It's anybody's guess, but let's look at some lines. So um, actually, uh, same same deck here for the S&P, and this is the point, right? 20%, I mean, 66%. More than half are down 25. So we have a few big marquee names that are holding up. As If and as they succumb, uh, we know what happens. So in terms of levels, here is the long-term chart. This is the financial crisis low, the 6th of March, 2009. This is the U.S. debt downgrade in 2011. Right here, the 2016 industrial earnings recession. Right here, the plunge low of mm. December. And so were we simply to come down to trend, which is 2,500, that's another 7% perfectly reasonable. But the real question is, could we get to the December lows? I mean, could we give back this entire ricochet of the past year? We know the S&P is not it, but the transports have already taken out the low. The bank index already taken out the low. The Russell 2000 and the energy. So let's look at each of those and then let's quit. The S&P, were it to get down to its ricochet low of Christmas of 2018, would be another 15%. 
The Russell 2000, on the other hand, would be a mere four, just four. That could happen tomorrow at 9.32, could happen next week, but the point is that's a foregone conclusion. And then here's the real issue. Look at some of these other aggregates. What we have are the transports. The transports have already taken out their Christmas low. And the key here is they never could make a high, never confirming what the S&P was doing. And finally, take a look at the bank index, never confirming the S&P's new high and has taken out the low. None of this is good. And sure, you can get bounces along the way, but bear market, got a lot of problems and let the dust settle before getting really excited about buying. Yeah, we'll see if the dust does settle. Come on over. I mean, so Karen, if you look at Carter's chart there, I think I did the math a little bit. We're looking at about maybe we could have another 7 to 9% down on the S&P 500 to hit that 2,500 super long. Nice elbow. You <laughs> if you're on the radio, they just bump elbows. Super long-term I mean, support. The trend line, right? Think about it. Those are pretty important reference points. The 09 low, the, the U.S. debt down in 2011, the 2016 low, and the 2018 low. Where we just to simply touch that, that's 7%. But... Uh, from there, it's anybody's guess. The real issue is the market, which made a new high, was never confirmed by most global mm-hmm. aggregates, by the banks, the transports, and it calls into question whether we do really test the December low. So you had talked about the Russell as being only 4% off of that. That unbelievable yes. plunge low, at which point it was itself was down 30%. So does that make it more attractive to you relative to the other ones? <laughs> or no, not, not, on a relative basis, well, I won't hold you to an absolute. Yes, that's but, one way to look at it. One could say since it's so much worse, therefore it has more bounce potential. But I think it's because it's got so many things that are playing. First of all, it's weighting in financials, as you know, is almost double that of the S&P. And small regional banks with rates and so forth are in real trouble. My hunch is that it's just a, it's a preview of coming attractions for the bigger indices. And coming attractions are not things we tend to like to sit through. I like the coming attractions. Sounds like a coming attraction of a bad movie. I mean, the bottom line is you see more downside likely ahead. I, I think that's, that's the message that I would convey, but I think it's also, it's also this. Let's say it's not about the downside. Switch the subject. Let's say we never go lower. It's, there's always downside in investing. We know that. This is not, uh, you know, tiddlywinks. It's about the upside. The upside is capped. If you look at the statistics on how long it takes to recover from a 20% decline, the median takes about two years. years. That's right. That's a problem. And this may be where you're getting to, but let's cut right also to literally the shape of these charts. Investors are, are, are become so inured to expect a V shape right. recovery. Um, and, and we talk about in the context of economies and is the is it going to be a v-shaped recovery from the coronavirus who knows but but the charts themselves um that's a big ask and, can, and can especially you start since to, we had the v off of the december well that's so that's the reason they expect v right and, and and usually you don't meaning it's tricky to pull off a v they're rare U's are common you you heal you cure ricochets are impetuous impulsive and they're rare all right, Carter Worth, Carter, good stuff there on those charts. I mean, really long-term, that Russell chart was incredibly dramatic. Carter, thank you very much. need you at a time like this. All right, meantime, President Trump meeting with his economic team about the coronavirus and the economy and ostensibly the stock market. All within the past hour, let's get out to Eamon Javers, who is at the White House, with more. Eamon. Brian, we were told that that meeting began shortly after 4 p.m. this afternoon. Not sure whether it's broken up or not, but I can tell you that the vice president's press conference on coronavirus, which was scheduled to start at 5.30, has now been pushed back to the top of 6 p.m., and they have replaced the vice presidential seal at the podium with the presidential seal at the podium. So it seems likely that we will hear from President Trump at the top of the hour now, uh, and we may get a readout on what he decided, if anything, with his economic team. I was told that 
they were going to go into that meeting and present the president with a list of options in terms of economic stimulus and response uh, to the coronavirus economic damage that we've seen so far. So as you take a look at that uh, podium now in the briefing room, we do expect to see the president there shortly here. Uh, and we'll also uh, have a chance to ask him about his meetings upcoming with those Wall Street CEOs. That coming up on Wednesday, uh, and then the vice president will be meeting here tomorrow uh, with health insurance executives as well, all as part of the administration's coronavirus response. So we should uh, have a little bit more news for you here in about 20 minutes' time, Brian. I don't want to put you on the spot, Eamon, with rumors and speculation, but I mean, I know you're there. You got your ear to the ground. You're literally seeing some of these folks walk around. Is there, do you think there's any real shot of some kind of massive stimulus pack? I mean, literally, you know, sending a thousand dollar check to small business owners or, or taxpayers? I they're skeptical of that idea here, right? I mean, on Friday, we heard Larry Kudlow dismiss that as helicopter money, pointing out that it hasn't worked in the past, you know, when George W. Bush tried uh, something similar. Uh, you know, they don't like that idea here. On the other hand, that was about 3,000 points on the Dow ago that, that Larry Kudlow said that. So uh, we'll see where, where the thinking is now. My sense is that what you've got here is a largely free market-oriented economic team uh, and a largely protectionist president of the United States. And so those two things are not always on the same page. And the president uh, is definitely one uh, for big gestures. Uh, he's one to, to sort of go for the moonshot solutions a lot of the time. Uh, so you, you could see a scenario where the president looks at that menu and says, I'm going to go for the biggest possible option here. Uh, but we'll just have to wait and see. I don't know uh, what they presented him with in that meeting. And that meeting uh, may have just broken up or be about to break up right now. Hey, Eamon, it's Tim. Can you can you talk about the health czar talking about the economy today? It, it is, can you explain what that was? It was unusual. So that was the HHS secretary, Alex Azar, who came out uh, on the driveway behind me this morning. He was doing some television interviews on another network. Then afterward, he came over to where the press was gathered to try to get some questions to him. He came over to the microphones and gave a prepared statement about the stock market and said that the president has delivered the best economy uh, and that the fundamentals of the economy are strong. He reacted to the stock market. He said it's been very active today, but the economy ultimately is strong. That's not a message you typically hear from the Secretary no. of Health and Human Services at the White House. Usually that's a Treasury Secretary message, a National Economic Council Director message. Uh, presidents, you know, typically don't, don't talk about the stock market really much at all. Uh, but in, in this case, Azar clearly felt like he, he wanted to deliver that message. He came out, he delivered that message to the microphones, turned and walked away and didn't take a single question. So it was clearly a planned thing, but it's just an unusual thing for them to do that way. Yep. Thank you. All right, Eamon Javers, Eamon at the White House as we are awaiting that press briefing as well. Guy Dami, if we got some kind of fiscal package, literally stimulus of some kind, small business, direct payments, right. will that help the stock yeah, market? Of course it will. I mean, it's, and I don't know the answer that Steve does, and I'm, I actually don't know the answer. Are there circuit breakers on the way up? Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> Which is fascinating to me. There so, used to be, I think, but, but now there's 11 different moves. stock markets. Yeah, like or something. So, you I, have I, stuff on the way down, but you don't really have that methodical. Yeah, I, I bring yeah. it up to you point out the, the absurdity wheels, of the whole but, thing. Uh, but, you know, ab absolutely. Now, quickly, if you can remember back to, I think it was February 8th, 2016. Market traded down, the S&P traded down to 1810. If you recall, in August of the previous year, you had the... You had the China Yuan deval, the market was on thin ice, and it cratered that day. In the aftermarket that day, you saw Jamie Dimon buy a significant portion of J.P. Morgan stock 
for himself when the stock, I think, was trading 53. I think you had a Deutsche Bank bond offering as well. And you had some sort of OPEC news. And you had three things. The market never looked back. If we get a hint of that, to your point. Casinos were buying their stocks, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you get a hint of that, then yes is the answer. You know, that's what the market wants. I'm not necessarily sure it's going to get it. But, we'll see. But I, I, th- I think, Brian, it's, it's a case where you, you, we, we're, all we're talking about tonight is uncertainty. Um, and yes, fiscal path forward can give you some confidence. I think it probably gives you more confidence that, that, that politically we're able to get things done at a difficult time, which are in the best interest of the country. But, but I, I just think right now this is the issue with stepping in on, on, on multiple fronts. Um, it doesn't mean that, that assets have to get a whole lot cheaper, but the grinding around in the sense that equities are going to V-shape and get away from you, um, even on a fiscal package, when you still don't know uh, the credit story of a number of companies and, you know, and and, and again, people are starting to talk about big industrial companies, but certainly go through those transports. Um, and, and I don't want to name companies at this point. I, I but, do think that there but are. Fiscal would help more than the monetary yeah. would help. Let's, let's not forget the, the, the stimulus package under Obama was passed, I think, February 11th or something, 2009. The market bottomed like a week later. Now, very different scenario than I get it. But if you're looking for any to the any, any kind of stimulus, whatever it is. All right. Well, today's big sell-off tried to send some investors into gold, but not as much as you might have thought. Yeah, gold ticked higher a little bit, but certainly not the move many may have thought. Let's bring in Bill Baruch. Bill, thanks for joining us here on set. Thanks. Were you surprised? Was it just that everybody was selling so much, nobody had any money left over to buy gold? Seriously. Yeah, that's a good point. Because really, even if you look back at 2008, gold sold off in 2008. It wasn't until the aftermath when it rallied in 2011, went to 1900 went down to about $800 in 2008. So I've traded gold for more than 15 years, cut my teeth on it. I've always lived by the narrative, you don't want to be buying gold when everybody's screaming for it. You want to be capitalizing on gold that you already own at that time. So I think gold's struggling around 1700 right now. And t- today, you would imagine it should have gotten out above there. It couldn't. The high in gold, I think, came on the open in the S&P. The S&P sold off another 100 points. And uh, so I-, I think you don't want to chase gold up here. There's going to be a buying opportunity, and it's already up 11% this year. So yeah. you look from that standpoint, uh, it's not the time to be buying. It's wait, wait, for, wait for a pullback here. What about silver? Yeah. That, that's another great point. Look at all the metals. The metals got creamed. I think platinum was down 30 bucks. Palladium was down 30 bucks. Copper was down silver. Silver can't get going. And I think that's another thing you want to keep a pulse on um, because when silver finally turns, that could be the, the really great breakout that would, could send, send gold to new all-time highs if silver ever catches that bid. Uh, and the other thing to keep an eye on if you're, if you're trading gold is watch treasuries, the yields. And one thing that kind of concerns me a little bit in the near term is we've seen when quantitative easing QE1, QE2, QE3, yields bottomed within a month of that every time. So if yields bottom and come up a little bit, that's not supportive for gold. But again, that aftermath is what gold will help gold break up. So I got to tell you, I've been a gold. I never got gold. I never got it. So I thought a part, a lot of the fundamental story was an inflation hedge, right? We couldn't be heading more toward a non-deflationary scenario. How is it that that, that doesn't sort of undermine the gold well, I think you're right. I mean, it's, it's a narrative, I think, that's been flipped upside down. I mean, we're going into a deflationary environment right now. And, and really, I think gold's going to be driving off the dollar. If the dollar's weak, gold's going to be priced off dollars. And, and again, dollar was down a whole percent, the dollar index today, more than that maybe. But gold couldn't break out. So I think you've got you to kind of forget that narrative for a little bit. But there's times if, the, if we get an uptick inflation, you've seen supportive for gold that day or that week. Bill, when you look at Bitcoin, has it helped? 
or hurt. It feels like it's helped the movement or the uh, or the uh, movement of money back into gold. And if you want to make a headline here, people have talked about five thousand dollar gold. What's your upside target target long term? Do you have any multiple thousand dollar target range? Because you hear it that it could be the five thousand range. You know, I, I don't put those those really absurd or, or kind of outlandish targets out there. I think it is realistic to see gold above two thousand and twenty two hundred, twenty five hundred in the aftermath of this. Speaking of Bitcoin, though, I, I sort of took that off my radar, my everyday radar recently or over turn of last year. I think you got to keep a pulse on it. But look, I think was Bitcoin down 10 percent today. And the fact that it couldn't capitalize on that, it, I mean, it's not a safe haven. But again, where gold is, you would think it'd be a safe haven capitalizing on a day like this. It didn't. It's again, yeah. it's, the, it's the aftermath. Um, we'll get you back on and talk about more of the industrial metals as well. Wonder what their signal is. Well, listen, all these companies, most valuable commodity in the world, we know what it is right now. I have no idea. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's not gold. All right. Let's talk about this. You're a gold yeah, guy. I understand what you're saying. I mean, you go back to I was actually working in 1987. I remember the day market was cratering much percentage wise, much worse than we're seeing uh, over the last couple of weeks. And gold caught a bid. And then all of a sudden it cratered. We saw it again, I think, 08, 09. There have been periods in history where you say, you know, gold should go higher. And it doesn't. It actually makes sense. For a myriad of reasons, not least of which source of funds or people getting out of things they have profits in, I happen to think gold, the story is not going away. And again, don't at me, but I think the next big problem is not going to be um, that rates continue to go down. It's when this genie is out of the bottle and you get this inflationary period where I know nobody thinks it's coming. First of all, there is inflation. The Fed just chooses not to measure it. Another conversation. Second of all, the turn in this is going to be so violent that the Fed's going to have no bullets, and that's when gold's going to be a story. There will be a time this year, in my opinion, where you walk in, it's up $200, people are looking around, gold. and the next day it's up another. Yeah, you can, you can timestamp that sucker for me. Guy Adami with the bold gold mm-hmm. prediction. All right. Today's sell-off also drawing huge moves in the options market. In fact, let's get to Mike Cohen in San Francisco. Mike, they told me you are going to talk about tonight, and I said there's no way that that's true based on the stats, but apparently it is. Tell us about the put buy. Yeah, so we were looking at HYG, which is the high-yield bond ETF. Now, it is conventional to see more puts than calls trade in this thing, but nothing like what we saw this morning. The put volume was outpacing calls by 50 to 1. And actually, of all of the ETFs, this was the second most active in terms of its put buying. And that's pretty extraordinary because the only one that was higher was SPY, which is obviously a much more heavily traded instrument overall. Implied volatility, which was right now we're looking at the price of 90-day at-the-money volatility in HYG, is basically at 10-year highs right now. And the activity that we were seeing that I was looking at does the March 81 puts, nearly 40,000 of those were trading for about $2. Those are making bearish bets in HYG that it could essentially retest levels that we saw in 2016. And actually, that's an interesting point, because the 2016 lows, we are seeing stress, but we aren't seeing a crisis necessarily in these prices. A lot of the issuers, as you know, Brian, like in the energy space, for example, the equities are trading like grim death. This could potentially go a lot lower if we take a look at where yields are, which are still under 6%. So I think there is room potentially to the downside. That seems to be what some people are betting on. Mike Coe, truly some unbelievable numbers there. Mike, thank you very much. All right, Tim Seymour, I, I, I honestly, I, I'm not the pro you are. I just don't know if I've ever heard of or seen those types of numbers. Brian, you that are kind of a hell of a pro. Let's be clear about that. No, <laughs> when, we, when we look at the HYG um, and you look 
once again, maybe the term of the night, the word of the night, velocity. This moved down quickly to those deck 24, 2018 levels where high yield was hemorrhaging. And again, what happens is there's no bid. There's, there's absolutely no one to step in. And what we heard uh, from Mike on the energy side, what I was hearing from high yield and distressed traders that I speak to uh, reasonably regularly, certainly during days like this, um, this, is, this is where we are. And there's no sense um, that assets have really found a price. Again, if you're, if you're looking at higher first lien loans in the high yield space, these things have gapped wider. So you can imagine as you get further down the curve. I, I, you know, so what, what Mike Coe is telling us is, is that options traders or people that are playing in the high yield space view that this move is set to break those December 2018 lows. And this is a credit move that I think is going to be equity negative. Okay. Good we just add one thing yep, real quick. quick. The LQD, which is investment grade, that index also down. Normally with rates lower, it goes higher, down a lot today. Good point there. All right. So we are coming up at the top of the hour. And of course, several key markets in Asia, they are about ready to open for the day. Let's get your setup now with CBC's Will Kaloris, who is live for us in Sydney. Will. I'm expecting another significant sell down when it does come to Asian markets. We saw the Nikkei coming off by around 5% yesterday. It's looking like an implied open of around 800 points down, which would suggest around a 4.5% drop. And it is interesting because the only strength we're seeing there is, of course, in the US dollar yen cross, but also Australian markets are expecting another considerable sell down as well. Right now, the SPY futures are showing around about a 4.8% drop off when it does come to the Australian markets. But I suppose the one saving grace is the fact that we've already taken our licks when it does come to the energy sector. They did see their worst day ever yesterday when it came to all those plays. And at the same time, we really hit that 30% drop off already. So perhaps there will be a little bit of easement when it does come to those energy plays as well. And also, just quickly, I do want to touch on the fact that the Australian Prime Minister is speaking right now and that fiscal stimulus is expected to come through shortly. So the hope is that we might perhaps see a little bit of a turnaround in the Australian markets moving forward, guys. All right, Will Kaloris in Sydney waiting on that open. Maybe circuit breakers there. Will, thank you very much. We've got some breaking news right now from Wilfred Frost joining us by phone about this meeting with Wall Street executives in the White House tomorrow. Wilfred, what can you tell us? Hey, Brian. Yes, indeed. So I can confirm not tomorrow, but uh, on Wednesday, the White House meeting with President Trump will go ahead with the bank CEOs Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, the nation's biggest seven banks uh, from J.P. Morgan down to U.S. Bancor and all in between uh, have been invited, maybe more as well, but certainly those seven have been invited. And I know at least two of those will send their CEO, I would imagine. Uh, all would send their most senior executive and CEO, other than, of course, J.P. Morgan with Jamie Dimon currently out of action. Some industry bodies have been invited as well, uh, including the ABA, the American Bankers Association. So uh, this is shaping up to be quite a large and significant meeting. Not often you get all of those individuals uh, in, the, in the room at the same time, of course, uh, taking place, due to take place in the White House with the president Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern time. Brian? All right, Wilford, thank you very much. Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern. I moved it up a day, Guy, but maybe they need to have it tomorrow instead of Wednesday. Will these executives be able to and tr- do anything about what happened in the stock market? Not necessarily, but I think it'll, be a, it'll definitely be a calming force. Look, again, we're not here to hype up when it's higher to, you know, to, to scare everybody when things are going lower. It is what it is. I mean, this is what we're living through. We've got to deal with it. People getting together, it's not a bad thing. If something comes out of that, that's fantastic. I do believe, and Karen and I spoke about this 
earlier. There's going to be a day, whether it's this week or next, where you see the Dow Jones Industrial Average up anywhere from 2,500 to 3,000 points. It's not out of the realm of possibility, given what we've seen. And quickly, if you want just to look at something, Carter talked about it before. That 128 level or so in the IWM, the Russell, is a huge level. Now, if we can hold there, the Russell never, it never verified the move up in the S&P. But if it can hold 128, maybe it'll lead us back to the way up in, in the S&P 500. So for me, the most important thing today, at least, is that 128 level in the IWM. All right, 128 on the IWM, guys. All right, so we've got about 90 seconds left. We've been commercial free for the last hour. So let's try to figure something out. For tomorrow. Not really a final trades, Tim, but just kind of getting texts like you are. Is the market going up tomorrow? Well, you know, and certainly like kind of a do's and don'ts. And, and certainly, look, my, my view is that there's been extreme selling and that there's many things that are oversold. And, and as much as I've harped on fear of credit, um, here's what I think you should do. I think you need to have a plan. So don't not have a plan. So forget the double negative. Have a plan uh, on stocks that you want to own and, and at what level you want to own them, ir- irrespective of the environment. Requires doing a little bit of work, mm-hmm. requires having. Having, I think, a bottom-up view on things. Um, but also, I think that's really, you have to be without emotion. Steve. I think you have to look at what today's lows were, whether it's a single stock or whether it's the overall market index. And I think that's where you start to look for a bounce. Wait for the panic to subside a little bit on coronavirus. The more we learn, I think the less panicky we'll be. Yeah, well, first of all, you don't have to do anything. But what I'm looking to do is add to positions I love, like Google, as it gets cheaper every day. I'm not looking to buy protection here. I think you've missed the boat if you're looking to buy protection now. It's too late. It's always painful, but it's absolutely necessary. And you know what? This one doesn't feel good, but I think it's the best possible thing. We'll get through this as well, Brian. All right, good words there, guys. Great show tonight. Commercial free for an hour. Thanks very much. We'll see you tomorrow. Mad with Jim. Starts right now. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.